This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Um, all right, so we got uh, we're joined here uh, from uh, with Lauren uh, over in Ireland. Uh, Lauren is um, has a very similar uh, experience that uh, Aaron and I do with uh, gender dysphoria, uh, but she has chosen uh, not to transition, and um, uh, so she's just going to talk to us uh, today about that and whatever else um, comes up. So thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Lauren. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, yeah, it's a question that comes up in, I mean, in our circles and even our, the membership of um, Gender Dysphoria Alliance, it just, because one of our missions is to educate about gender dysphoria and, you know, and, and removing that a bit from, from trans. I mean, I see trans as it's a treatment for gender dysphoria and, and it's not the only option. And um, so I'm really happy to have you here just to, just to talk about that, about, you know, shared experiences of just of dysphoria. I mean, I see the, the difference between myself and, and you is, is I just made a different decision um, as far as how I was going to treat it and manage it. But mm-hmm. I, I think our commonality is, is, is the experience of dysphoria itself. Yeah, I agree. I do agree. I was actually talking about this uh, with my wife earlier on and um, we were sort of saying that there, there are people I mean, there exists a a number of people whose like consistent and persistent discomfort with their sexed body. The the only way they can make you feel comfortable is to go through that process of transition, you know, is to is to make those changes. And for others, it's not that extreme. You know, I'd say that was probably the more extreme end of 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 a treatment um, of a form of treatment for it. But you know there are different ways of experiencing this condition there's different ways you know that somebody who's old might experience it to someone who's young from somebody who's female might experience it to someone who's male you know it's you get the the rapid onset gender dysphoria that seems to be cropping up particularly among teens you know and it, it all seems to be very different and to different degrees that it's experienced and in different ways. And it's very difficult to tell one person to treat their dysphoria in one particular way and another to do it in the exact same way when they have completely different experiences. So opening up this conversation is like really important. It's the kind of, it's the thing that I've been attempting to do on this side of the water anyway, um, alongside a number of other people. But I do see a lot of emphasis placed on transition. Uh, it's, it's in the media everywhere. It's written everywhere. It's offered up to people from a very young age. And you don't see an awful lot of people saying, well, maybe we should talk this through. You know, where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. How are you experiencing it? In what way does it manifest itself in you? Is there some other way we can help you? You know, is there a way in which we can make things easier for you? Um, you know, and I had a lack of those things when I was growing up too. It's something that I'm only, you know, probably in the past five years coming to terms with realistically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to preach to anybody about how they want to do things. I just think that having a cautious approach and not making decisions rashly is 
probably better than rushing into a thing and regretting it later. Um, mm-hmm. And I have the benefit of hindsight. You know, I have a lot of people I've spoken to about dysphoria and about their choices. And I know I'm doing the right thing for myself, you know. So it's interesting to hear different people's take on it, though. It really is. Like, I've sort of listened to both of you in different, you know, different platforms. Talk about yourselves through writing and speaking. And, you know, it always is great to hear another perspective and why you've made the decisions you have made. But, you know, I think for me, the, it's, it's not even not even just watchful waiting. It is challenging. It's, it's exploring who you are before you change who you are permanently, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure how the watchful waiting would even work these days with ideological capture. I mean, one of the ways that I got kind of into this mess for myself, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think there are cases where someone's dysphoria is to such an extreme that it that it maybe warrants more extreme treatment if, if that's what they need to move forward and, and nothing else has helped. But there's so many different factors that go into why people transition, not just the severity of the dysphoria. I mean, I would say that my dysphoria has been severe, but there were other factors like the fact that I grew up in a tiny little farming community where there wasn't a gay and lesbian community. I didn't have lesbian role models growing up. <clears throat> so it was all just very confusing. And I don't know that I necessarily had the infrastructure and support or, or information to make sense of it for myself. Um, so when I learned as, as an adult, the concept of trans because that's it was the beginnings of that ideology and and so the messaging was if you had these feelings you were a trans person as as though trans is a type of person like like a gay or lesbian person is a is a type of person and and i i don't think that's correct and and then it, it really collapses our options then you know when when we've we've gone away from the idea that this is a, a, an experience that some of us have called gender dysphoria um and there are, and we have options with that experience, right? I mean, you get to be a, a butch lesbian with gender dysphoria and you're not trans and no one should impose that, that label on you. But when we think of it as I am a trans person, then it made total sense to me to medicalize because I, I didn't, it could, what were my other options? There were no other options presented to me. Yeah, I mean, how would that work in practice? Um, I mean, there are a lot of people who, who are trans and don't medicalize now, mm-hmm. but there are also a lot of people who transition who don't have dysphoria. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's lots of things going on now that were really not even happening what a year or two ago, mm-hmm. um, maybe even longer, I don't know. But I mean, great that there's so many options, but I think that there is a lack of information really. There's a lack of discussion around options and consequences. And do you know that this is going to be what happens if you medicalize? Do you know that these complications can happen? Do you know what, you know, what the side effects may be? Do you know, you know, and you have to wear those up. Um, I wouldn't have had a clue. You know, if I had been a teen and I was offered that, I possibly would have jumped at the chance you know, because there were so many things that I didn't understand. Like yourself, I didn't have any. Um, I didn't have any lesbian role models around me. I was in quite a. Uh, I would say quite a religious 
place. Um, there was a lot of political strife going on in my country at the time. I didn't have the time, the inclination, the resourcefulness in a working class family to look up that stuff. I didn't have internet connection until my mid-teens. You know, I, I had no idea really what was going on in the outside world, let alone what was going on with my own body. And it was such a confusing time. So if somebody had said to me, do you know what, I've got this quick fix for you being uncomfortable with yourself as a woman and not wanting men's eyes on you, here's what it is. Go for this. This is transition. Woo. I would have been like, class, bring it on. Awesome. You know, that that looks like a, a good solution for me without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me personally, it wouldn't have been the right decision. Um, and I can only speak for myself, you know. And I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about me that, you know, there's people tell me I hate trans people. There's people tell me that I that I'm trying to force them to to make choices that I have made. And none of that's true. None of it's accurate. You know, everybody's individual. And what might work for me might not work for you or anybody else. I mean, it hasn't worked for you. So, you know, I I, I, I try to get myself out there so that people can see that's not the way things are. You know, I'm gender critical, which means I am critical of gender stereotypical roles i i'm gender non-conforming for a purpose you know i i don't want to live inside the feminine you know ways of doing stuff i don't want to wear pretty dresses and stuff there are different ways to be a woman there are different ways to be a man express yourself how you want call yourself what you like it's that's kind of my take on things and for me i mean i don't know about you um, has transition helped uh, your dysphoria? Does, has it gone away? Essentially is one of the questions I would love to know. For, for me, I, it, not entirely, but it, it, it did help. It, it made it manageable enough that, um, that I could just sort of get on with my life, but it's, it's not without, it's not without complications. I mean, to, to, the process of transition doesn't stop with hormones, right? I mean, it's it's a complicated social and psychological process as well that that I'll probably be working on for for the rest of my life. It, it that's something that negotiating things socially, for example, and these conversations about policy and bathrooms and all of that is is complicated and difficult. Yeah. Um, so that that doesn't that doesn't go away. <laughs> I suppose yeah. it's more it's more prominent at the minute as well. I mean, we're forced yeah. to have conversations in public about things that normally we would have kept private because we can't ignore them. <laughs> we can't ignore them at the minute. We're, we're sort of yeah. being, our boundaries are being challenged and we're being asked these questions openly now. So I guess you can't avoid it. When, uh, to answer the dysphoria question, is uh, my dysphoria was dramatically reduced um, with with transition, but like you guys are both saying, about 2016, 2017, when this came into the public public attention is when um, I started realizing that that suddenly, you know, the, the dysphoria had taken a, a, a shift for me and that suddenly a lot of people were seeing me um, as, as what I, what I was and not what I was trying to be, you know, rightly. So, so there's a period of time where a very short period of time where I could just, or at least, 
mostly sort of be just just a man, just you know, which was my intention. Uh, but around around the same time as I as I reached that pinnacle of my transition is when suddenly around you know sixteen seventeen, uh, people became very very aware of this issue, and then and then I was very insecure all over again about being perceived um, as 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 a trans man and not just a man. Um, so. Uh, but but what I also wanted to add in relation to the um, the gender dysphoria conversation is when I um, when I transitioned um, excuse me stepping back a minute um, uh, so so we both had or excuse me we all had gender dysphoria all growing up um, but with, with regards to the rapid onset gender dysphoria thing for me I could always keep it sort of bundled sort of compartmentalized I could deal with it easily enough you know live my life. Um, it wasn't debilitating until I encountered the internet and the react and the possibility of physical transition. And so in certain ways I had that, the rapid onset experience and that suddenly it was no longer something I could compartmentalize. It became all consuming and, uh, and obsessive. So um, I, I think it's just interesting that we, we, not only do we talk about like um, uh gender dysphoria as being different things, but I think many of us experience multiple layers of it, mm -hmm. essentially. And, and all that's being um, kind of just, just sidestepped and brushed under um, trans. Yeah. I mean, would you say your experiences of gender dysphoria growing up have drastically like, manifested themselves differently in adulthood? You know, are they, are they vastly different or are they sort of centered around the same things? What remains of gender dysphoria for you? That's a very good question. No, it, it is it is entirely different uh, now how I experience it. Um, really, really now um, uh, for for me, I don't um, because because transition did as far as my body goes. Transition did did fix about ninety percent of my dysphoria. What, what remains is only a very you know a personal personal dysphoria in, you know, in, in bedroom matters, you know, that's the only dysphoria that remains anymore. Um, so, uh, so, so for like my, all intents and purposes of my, my life and, um, uh, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, so that's, that has been a major, uh, uh, yeah, a major pro um, for me. And then even when I was talking about that social dysphoria that came back when uh, the idea of people seeing me as a trans man rather than a man, I was able to solve that for myself by fully embracing the fact that I just am female. There's no, I am not a man. You know, I never will be a man. I am, I am a trans man. And so once, you know, once you embrace that for yourself and can accept that, then, then the, then the social stuff doesn't really it doesn't impact anymore. Uh, but, but as far as my body goes, I am more comfortable in my body now. Um, and, and in my, you know, and what, and what I see reflected back at me. Um, so, so, so yeah, my, my, my bodily dysphoria, um, is mostly eradicated again, except for, you know, uh, yeah, sexual right. matters. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Aaron, would how would you feel? How how would you answer that question in regards to uh, childhood dysphoria versus what you what your experience is now? Yeah, it is it is a good question, um, and I agree with you that I was for most of my life able to compartmentalize it. Not that that I mean compartmentalizing it's not a, it's not a cure, right? It's it's not like it it ever went away, and and it, it does take a psychological certain psychological tool to compartmentalize. But I was able, yeah. you're right, I was able to do that, and and there were times in my life where that was easier to do, and 
and other times when that was harder to do. So I, I don't, I don't experience that anymore. I would say that I, I feel more integrated. I don't feel like I'm, I've compartmentalized pieces of myself in the same way that I did as, as a kid. Right. Okay. Um, my experience would be, I'd say my, my experience, my experiences in adulthood are different because you, you behave very differently as a child as you do when, when you're an adult. I suppose you have to consider as an adult that you have relationships with other, other people, um, adult relationships with other people, and some of those are sexual relationships. So my relationship with my wife, I have to take into consideration. I didn't have that when I was young. So mostly when I was young, my gender dysphoria manifested in a way that was very physical. So it was the fact that you know, pre-puberty, which happened early for me at the age of 10, um, I just could get on like everybody else because before puberty, boys and girls are fairly similar, really. You get up to the same stuff, you know, providing you're not in a very strict household, you know, with strict dress codes. I was skateboarding, BMXing, doing stunts, climbing trees, being a tomboy, really. Um, And it didn't bother me because I could just be who I wanted to be. And I was happy doing that. But when I hit puberty, um, and it was early, I very quickly grew breasts, very large ones. You know, I'm talking like size D, double D cup um, from an early age. And it was before I understood what sex and sexuality even were. Uh, I had periods. I felt like the experience of having my first period was a trauma one because I didn't know what they were at the time. I was so young and that sort of wasn't a good first experience, I suppose, because I thought I was going to die. Um, I thought I was dying. I was like, what is this? Why am I bleeding? Is, am I going to go? And I had to kind of come to terms with that. But I felt trapped. I felt trapped by my own body and the way that my body was behaving. And I had no control over it whatsoever. So it became a sort of monthly reliving that trauma uh, and on my body changing and developing in ways that I couldn't stop, you know. Uh, and with it, naturally, comes attention, comes the gaze of others because they see somebody with breasts. And I got attention from people who, mostly men, let's be fair. Um, and it was unwelcome. It was unwanted. I hadn't even discovered who I was. I didn't understand why they were giving me that attention when they did at first. And when I did, it made me feel, you know, gross. So. I discovered sort of in my teens that I, you know, I was attracted to women and there was a lot of guilt and shame just centered around that because of being in a sort of religious community, being in a place that was very small. I had no, like I said before, no lesbian um, people to look to, to see if it was even normal to have those feelings. And I just wanted everything to go away. You know, I wanted it to stop. And I thought that there was something I thought that I was in like I was made wrong there was like there was something not right like my thinking was wrong or something was skewed and I couldn't understand it um and it was really only as an adult that I sort of flipped the switch on that and sort of grew to understand who I really was but not without some trauma first and um during this time up till the age of 19 really I didn't tell a single soul I told nobody who I was. I told nobody about my feelings for other girls. I just told nobody, not my friends, 
not my mom, not my sister, not my cousins, nobody. And sort of having that locked in, almost almost like a locked in syndrome with myself, with my emotions. Uh, it was very toxic, a very dark place at the time. So I left. I actually left the country to go to university. I thought if I get away, everything will be fine. It'll be grand. I can live how I want and things will be different for me. But it's not that easy. You know, you take your baggage with you. You take your body with you. You've got the same stuff you're dealing with no matter where you go in the whole world. And I took it with me. So it was really only through meeting my wife that I grew to understand that it's okay. You know, the feelings that you're having, you know, this is what they're called. You know, this is this is dysphoria. You know, this is how we can work around it. So part of my dysphoria as an adult and relating to my wife and being in a sexual relationship um, I don't know how detailed you want to go here, but we're talking about bedroom issues, Aaron. But like, <laughs> I, I was so puritanical around. in my verbiage. Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we work around those too, right? Because dysphoria is still here. You know, it's still part of my life. And me personally, I would be what you would call not stone butch, but not far off it. You know. <laughs> Uh, and that's where I kind of lie and my comfort levels would be that there is very few times that I feel comfortable being touched in certain places or receiving pleasure um, at all. And the reason being, I have discovered, is because it's the way in which you receive that pleasure as a female is a very female centered sort of pleasure. And that, for me, is a difficult experience to have because I mostly embody a masculine of centre place. So, and also, I think dysphoria, it skews your perception of yourself. So I, I mostly live out my days, maybe fairly similar to yourselves, in a very fairly masculine place. I'm kind of incorporated into the lads, you know, place at work. I spend my time around the lads rather than with, with women. And, um, you know, I'm mostly wearing clothes from the men's department. I'm mostly getting buzz cuts like the guys do. And I still, I, I still have female friends and so on. But I find that my way of relating to people now, just being my authentic self, is just very masculine of centre. And people, you know, I'm mostly received very well, know me, and people who have, you know, meet me face to face. But I still get that kickback uh, from public. I get the stares. I get the comments. I get, you know, I get some of that stuff. And it doesn't help you feel any better about how you look. But it kind of, it's just something that I deal with now. Um, and I am glad to say that in my personal relationship, my wife is so respectful, so respectful of my boundaries that we're able to work around having a real healthy relationship, you know, both in terms of company and emotionally, but also sexually too. Um, we, I find that we're very healthy now. So I, I guess it matters who you have in your life as well as how you're dealing with your own dysphoria that counts. Maybe. It seems like, I mean, it's common enough in the lesbian community, like from what I remember, like, especially in the, in the butch family community, it, it seemed common enough an experience that I felt like it was sort of built into the culture where a lot of the femme partners understood it and knew how to support. And 
I feel like that's that's missing, you know, when when you leave the lesbian community or were never a part of the lesbian community or if if conversations about gender dysphoria aren't honest and open and on the table, like I don't know how to put it. Like I just wonder how many of these young kids that have that haven't had that experience of butch community and and knowing that lots of lesbians have gender dysphoria i i just yeah. wonder um they also are, are don't have that culture of support and understanding okay um i haven't had that culture you know i grew up and i didn't have a culture any lesbian community culture i didn't have any butch community i i haven't met another butch woman in person in my life but I know I've met a masculine of center lady who doesn't define as butch but I haven't met I don't have any in my friend circle that I've met face to face so that kind of you know it's taken me a long time to arrive at being in a place of as much comfort as I can possibly be and secure in who I am I would say I am secure in who I am now but uh, I think those communities are disappearing if not all but gone and Mm -hmm. it's impossible now to meet in a single sex lesbian space Mm -hmm. Uh, there are none online i've searched in ireland to see if there are any there is not any in the island of ireland at all and they're fast disappearing everywhere um but we're creating them again you know we are creating lesbian only spaces again we've got we've had a few meetups now already in ireland uh, from some of the people that we know which have been amazing. And we are starting to have these conversations again about who has what discomfort. And and I'm finding it is a very, um, it's enlightening. It's something that I really could have done with. I needed it when I was younger. And I know that there are young people out there who probably feel alone in the ways in which they're feeling. Um, I think there is a degree to which um, transition and and identifying as trans, if not going down the medical route even, is kind of a social epidemic. There's a bit of that going on to a degree. And there are some people who are genuinely struggling there who could do with people to talk to, you know, who could do with talking through these issues, even if it's just in a social setting. And, you know, the fact that a lot of them have disappeared where there is not this sense of, if you don't agree with me, then you're not welcome in this circle. Like, that's BS. You know, I, I, what we dream of here is creating the kind of circles there used to be, where you could be any, you know, political persuasion, any religion, any race, any, um, any really thought process that you wanted to have you could just be yourself and say what it is that you think and disagree with the person beside you mm-hmm. and like still everything would be okay you know because I mean I think there's a lot of division there's a lot of divisive talk going on and it's a very toxic environment to be in like I find I don't know about yourselves but I find Twitter particularly as a platform it's so toxic yeah <laughs> there's pylons left right and center and and this person trying to cancel that person. And it's just crazy. I sort of limit the amount I go on there. But having said that, you know, the flip side of it is, I feel like I met my people on there. You know, I met people who, like yourselves even, who have experiences of gender dysphoria, alike with myself. 
people who who I do agree with, you know, who we can, uh, people who are lesbian. I found a lesbian community across the world, not in the same country necessarily, but, you know, even just across the world, holding Zoom meetings, anything like that, being able to talk with other people about these issues is really cool. And I think now COVID's over, which we didn't, like nobody could help that. But like now it's over, it's nice to be able to start thinking about seeing some of these people in real life and having these real conversations in actual places, you know. Um, I don't know what you think about it. You kind of touched on exactly what social media does, right? Like it, it, it creates this really toxic culture where everybody's monitoring themselves and canceling those who aren't monitoring, monitoring themselves well enough. But it is also incredibly helpful to find like-minded people and connect with people who you can actually have, you know, meaningful conversations and relationships with. Um, you just have to do it in a toxic slew. Um, but like you were saying, we all you know, we all grew up, it sounds like, in fairly conservative environments, probably in the, in the. I think I'm a little bit younger than, than you guys. So like in the 80s and 90s, anyway, we grew up. And um, uh, then, so we grew up in a time when, well, for me, like the only thing you couldn't question was was the Bible, right? So I grew up conservative Christian, evangelical. Um, and even then you were encouraged to ask questions about it, but mostly, you know, obviously God's word is God's word. You don't challenge it, but pretty much anything could be talked about. Like you had friends from a variety of, of, um, you know, well, again, not in my religious upbringing, but as far as the culture at broad, um, people had friends and relationships across a myriad of, of kind of, um, you know, lines of thinking and, and religious creeds. And, um, and, and now, so we so we can look back and go, wow, that was great. Being able to talk freely and openly with with people you disagree with or agree with, and and um, navigate those things, and we can kind of you know look back in nostalgia, like we need to get that back. Um, not just nostalgia, but like <laughs> for actually uh, you know civilization continuing, we need to get it back. But kids, you know, kids who have grown up, you know, anybody born post what ninety seven, ninety eight, uh, has kind of grown up you know, thinking that their thoughts are, are visible, you know, social media has made everybody um, just, just, uh, just, they self-censoring is almost is knee jerk for them. It's not something that they have to think about. It, it's like what they have to stress about and think about is how to actually, you know, have an idea that might, might conflict with somebody else's ideas. <coughs> Excuse me. So that that self-centering or self-censoring seems to just be inbuilt into their brains at this point. And how we um yeah, how, how we get beyond that, I don't know. Um we teach them. Yeah. We teach them by example, really. You know, this kind of conversation here, making it public, you know, something that you would normally keep fairly private, talking about how things affect you in very personal ways. Being able to disagree with one another and still, you know, hold a conversation. It's okay that you don't agree with me on whatever. It's fine. You know, you don't have to. And I think there are instances where I have seen hope, you know, in this area. Um, for example, a few weeks ago, I, I wrote a, a thing on my Twitter feed. Uh, it was a thread. And um, I had a young trans woman come onto the thread and say, I completely disagree with your perspective, rah, rah, rah. 
And I was like, okay, explain to me what it is you disagree with here, because I'm looking at your two tweets that you've done and nothing that you've said is actually disagreeing with me at all. And we eventually took it off the main timeline and onto a private message and continued the conversation. And it turns out we actually didn't really disagree at all. It was over the ban on conversion therapy. Um, and we we really held very, very similar thoughts on the whole thing. And I think that there are more people out there who agree than realize they agree with one another. They're too busy getting enmeshed in the things where they disagree when really we should be focusing on the areas where we can all come together, we can all have a discussion and we can, I guess, be in a situation where we tolerate each other's differences like the way things used to be. And one of the other issues I suppose I find is, um, and what is worrying, I've been told that uh, by several young people that they have lost the art of conversation. So they struggle to be able to have a conversation at all with somebody that uh, is very personal, that says something about the, what they really believe because they're scared to say what they really believe and think. Um, and also they don't know how to disagree in a way that continues a conversation instead of shutting it down. And I sort of said, well, you're having a conversation with me right now and I don't agree with you on that point, but look, we're still talking. You know, and it's kind of, I think you're right in the sense that young people, you know, there is a different language going on there, different, maybe intergenerational um, difficulty and in, in understanding how one another talks and relates. Um, but I, what I have noticed is that there's a difference between what people want to show you on social media about their lives and how they actually live. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think maybe there just needs to be a bridge you know, we need to find a bridge um, where we can come together and, like, be. Mm -hmm. I would love to have conversations with people who suffer from dysphoria or don't and who still wish to transition or who are not sure about it. And, you know, they just want to talk to people. Um, and I don't really know. I don't know an abundance of people who have dysphoria, for example, and don't talk about it or um, who are out there, you know, maybe on one or two hands I can count at all who haven't transitioned and experienced it. So, you know, it would be interesting to know more. It would be interesting to know more of the facts surrounding it as well. Um, and it would be interesting to know, for example, the number of people whose transition is successful and the number of people whose transition is not, uh, how many detransitioners there really are out there and what it was that happened for them that could change, you know, things that could be different ways in which they could have been treated that would have made things different for them. And I think we're all, you know, society has been too caught up in not wanting to discriminate, that they're forgetting to treat people as people and not just subjects. It's, uh, it's, it's got to change eventually. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, I mean, it's often a bit of a tangent, but just what you said about um, creating lesbian gay spaces again how how is that working legally in in ireland because i know in some places it's illegal right to for lesbians to have lesbian only spaces it's illegal to have uh in some places it's illegal so it depends on what country you're in probably 
It's illegal to have public events that are lesbian-only spaces, but it is not illegal to conduct private parties that have lesbian or gay-only spaces. You're still allowed to have your own private party and you're allowed to invite whoever you want and you're allowed to exclude whoever you want because it's a private party. You know, you don't have to invite all your neighbours to your kid's birthday party. It's a private party. And like that, it's similar. So we've had a couple of private parties here. There's no law enforced here that says it's hate crime to not have a single sex space. It's not in force as of yet. But I guess in Ireland in particular, things will go the way they used to be in that lesbians used to meet behind closed doors in private places and have private events, you know. And uh, worryingly, it's going back to that. But I guess we will survive it. We will get through it. And eventually, hopefully, um, hopefully the laws will change. Hopefully it won't be so, you know, they're essentially pushing us back into the closet with being able to do this in public. Everything does seem to be sort of centred around... Um, there's there's a lot centered around the rights of trans people, and I believe trans people do have they have they are human, obviously <laughs> they deserve their human rights. So does everybody else. And what what there is an issue with is where those rights are conflicting. You know where one person's rights is going over the boundary of another, and I guess it's a very tricky thing to look at because where there is a boundary, there's often people sitting in that area, you know, um, uh, in this country, it's mostly women and children who are going to possibly be affected by it because uh, I'm sure we've all heard of the changing rooms debate, but um, I find it's a complex sector of it. It is, uh, but it can't be ignored forever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, something's going to have to be sorted out. I don't know how they're going to sort it out. I don't know if they're going to consider third spaces or what I, I I wouldn't like to be in the political sphere, but judging by public perception, judging by the public's uh, response to everything, there is clearly a problem. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having demonstrations. We wouldn't be having people shouting this thing on one side and the others chanting that thing on the other. You know, there is clearly an issue going on. And I guess the point is we need to find a place to talk about it, to find a common ground. Um, but yeah, I used to have the same thing there, you know, as uh, I've never been. I've been to America. <laughs> it's, it hasn't escalated to the same degree that it has in the UK with, with the, the large scale demonstrations and, and those, those kinds of things. But I mean, tension is, is building for sure. Um, mm. I know that there was a demonstration outside of one of the prisons here recently um, because they had, they had transferred a trans woman um, who was a sex, quite extreme sex offender into a women's prison. So, so that brought some people out to demonstrate about that, but um, yeah, but not on, not on the same scale that you're seeing. I'm, I'm, there are questions I have about all of that, that I don't know if anyone knows the answer to. So, I mean, the things I would be interested in finding out is, are there trans women who don't want to be transferred to women's prisons? Are there trans men in prison who don't want to be transferred to men's prisons? I don't know. Oh. I, I don't have any numbers about that either. Like, 
I know. I mean, is that a thing? Do they have a choice? If you are, if you are one or the other, do you do you not have an option? Do you just have to go there? It's so interesting to sort of the questions that aren't being asked. Yeah, it's a very good question. I don't think there are any cases of trans men being put in men's prisons. Um, we all know why that, you know, for, for the very same yeah. reason why we shouldn't be putting um, putting men in, in, or males in, in women's prisons. But I don't, um, <laughs> like, are there any trans women who don't want to be transferred to the women? No, I don't imagine there are any males anywhere who wouldn't rather be in the in the female, in the women's prison than in, in the in the male prison, right? I mean, for, for even just for safety reasons, but... Um, but no, I, I, this does seem to be a one-way road um, as far as I can, I can deduce. I don't know. And you guys up in Canada are talking more about the, the prison thing. I'm not sure where we're at here. Um, I haven't um, – it's a good question. Aaron, do, do you know any cases in Canada of, of, of um, trans men being placed in, in men's prisons? I'm not aware of any cases, no. And I mean, it seems like a lot of trans men are completely oblivious to how all of this is playing out in the world and, and, and not at all receptive to conversations about it. And in my experience, you know, on like on public forums and stuff, they just, it's such a, it's such a blind spot and they, in denial that it's even happening. Like even that some of the incidents of trans women being transferred to women's prisons and then women being assaulted or, or sexually assaulted in the prisons. Like I, tried to have that conversation on a forum and was immediately kicked off of the forum. So there's not, and I don't, I would think that if, because here in Canada, it's um, the push to legally make trans women, women and trans men, men, that seems to be led mostly by trans women. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if the average trans man realizes the implications of that for, for us, right? If, if the law is written in such a way that the law doesn't see us, the law just sees trans women as women and trans men as men, then we would be put in men's prisons. And, and I don't think the average trans man realizes that that's what's coming down the line for us. I think the, the laws also, they're failing to see that yes, trans people do need rights. You need specific rights so that you are protected. What they don't see currently, it seems, is that there are people who are claiming to be trans who are taking advantage of the law. And that's very worrying, you know, and how long is that going to go past and how many people are going to get damaged as a result? Um, from this being overlooked or people not wanting to look at it because it's scary and might, you know, you know, it might challenge a few things. It's, it's very worrying. Um, and the reason they're having demonstrations over in the UK at the moment, mostly is because um, there is a woman who is facing doing actual jail time. You know, Marion Miller on Twitter. She is being prosecuted under the hate crime legislation in Scotland and she has kids, you know, she has a life, she has been targeted, her children have been targeted in their own homes and uh, people are demonstrating because, you know, they disagree with what's happening to her. Um, and there are currently trans women in UK prisons in female estate 
And what she faces is being housed in a prison that possibly has some of those people in it. And there are also violent offenders or they have um, offences for um, sexually aggravated attacks, that thing, that kind of thing. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be going there. You know, it's such a such a difficult place to be. And I, you know, what we know about it is that somebody has to be prosecuted under this hate crime legislation for it to go to the um, the Court of Human Rights. And only when it goes to the Court of Human Rights and they can see that it um, conflicts with, with women's rights as well, uh, will they pay attention to the fact that it's, you know, unlawful to have the uh, the hate crime legislation in place in the way that it is currently. Um, and I think maybe we're doing things the wrong way around here. You know, we're, we're prosecuting people first and send them to prison before we actually look at how the law is going to affect people in real time. It seems really irresponsible of the politicians to write these laws without really thinking about all of, all of those nuances and logistics. I don't know. I think that maybe just, you know, there's a lot of, there's a history of people not being progressive enough and not being tolerant enough. And, you know, there have been a lot of um, things been done against LGB and T people who, you know, and I think in wanting to right those wrongs, they've maybe gone way too far in the other direction and pushing through things without thinking them through. And um, I guess testing the idea, testing the law and, uh, uh, maybe looking at it fully in the public sphere, you know, looking at how things are written and what way and stuff before they pass those legislations and bills. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not a professional on this subject. I only know what most other people who have read a few things on it know. But, you know, us in Ireland here, we, you know, are possibly facing the same fate. You know, somebody in Ireland is possibly going to be prosecuted under this in the very near future. It could be me, for all I know, because I write articles for lesbian and gay news now and again. I do things on Twitter and it could be classed as disseminating information across the border. You know, so these things can happen to any of us mm-hmm. um, and we don't know when and we don't know how and we don't know where. But wasn't know, in that case, it, yeah, wasn't in that case, it's largely a false premise as well like wasn't it that somebody had had claimed that a picture of a suffrage suffragette ribbon was a noose or something and interpreted yeah. that as a, like a death threat or something it, yeah they said that they felt unsafe um and the I, I don't know i don't know all the circumstances around it but um it was over something like five tweets um i know that much but I don't know, it could, you know, it's going to be, if it's going to be over that, you know, we're talking about censorship here. We're talking about um, destroying freedom of speech. Um, there's a whole whole load of things on the table there that that um, we weren't considering before. Uh, you've got to watch what you do on social media. Social media are shutting us down too, you know. So you say, the, you say something that's true about biology and you get kicked off. They, how, well, how new is that? Is that hate crime legislation you guys have over there? Our hate crime, our crime, hate crime legislation hasn't passed. It's only oh, in, oh, okay. uh, you know, but it is a government bill, so it will pass. It's not up for debate. It's, okay. It will pass. It's just a matter of when. Mm. So we'll watch this space. Going back 
to the um, uh, uh, dysphoria conversation, I was wondering what you, because um, you were saying that you, you, you started puberty quite young, right, at, at 10 years old. Do you think that kind of, <clears throat> and it was obviously a very traumatic experience, certainly getting a period, do you think that that if I'm, I'm imagining that maybe your parents, your mother didn't realize obviously that you were going to be developing so young, didn't maybe have time to have that conversation. I wonder if, if I mean, not that it's really relevant to, to where you are, but I'm wondering, do you think if you had maybe started pu- puberty at like 13, 14, do you think that, that, um, you, you know, maybe had time at least culturally or maybe from your parents to, to learn about what, uh, you know, what puberty would look like for you. Do you think that would have been a less traumatizing experience and maybe would have not resulted in, in, you know, what we consider gender dysphoria? The answer is, I don't know. I mean, my mom, my mom, I can't fault. She's one of the most wonderful people I know. She's really loving, really kind. She means nobody any harm. And my lack of information at that young age was just because nobody really expects their child to go through an early puberty and she didn't expect me to. So, you know, she did talk to me about it when I did have my first period. And it was as shocking to her as it was to me. (laughs) But um, I guess possibly not. I mean, I would have still found it a difficult experience maybe not as traumatizing because a lot of my friends started to go through having their you know puberty and having their periods around that time as well but um I still had the I still had the other underlying fact that I was attracted to women Mm -hmm. and not to men and I think that being a massive secret for me was part you know it was all enmeshed it was all, you know, caught up in the same thing for me. And I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't have examples in my life of how to deal with that. I didn't know what I was feeling, why I was feeling it, what, you know, I didn't know how to get out of that or if there even was a way that I could, you know, change things or understand it. You know, it was it was so hard. So I don't think it would have stopped me from having discomfort with my body. I don't think that would be the case. It okay. maybe would have been different. Maybe would have been you know, less extreme. Maybe would have been more extreme. I don't know. But yeah, I'll never know. I, I won't. I was still closeted until the age of 19. So it wouldn't have changed that. You know? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting. It maybe would have stopped. Sorry. No, go ahead. It, it perhaps would have stopped um, the male gaze from being on me from such a young age, from a, from an age before I understood what sexuality and sex and, you know, people hitting on you was. You know, that was that made me very uncomfortable. I didn't understand why that was happening. So it maybe would have given me more time. It kind of sounds like, you know, at least three different um, pretty profound and uh, traumatizing experiences kind of compounded in your teenage years or even preteen years to kind yeah. of make it, make it. And it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because I had um, almost the exact opposite uh, experience that you did in that, <clears throat> uh, you know, as a kid, you know, very, very much tomboy, same thing there. Um, I, I felt um, I felt like I should have been a boy. I felt like, a, you know, a mistake was made. Um, and I had a lot of shame about that just because, um, you know, growing up, growing up in a conservative environment, 
female gender role or gender roles in particular were, were um, really concrete and enforced. And I was, con I was constantly being in the wrong in my behavior. Um, and so I think I took that to basically mean I should have been a boy because I act like a boy. I want to dress like a boy, you know, and then, <clears throat> and then that, um, uh, uh, so I, I started to feel like, you know, maybe God does make a mistake. Maybe I was supposed to be a boy sort of thing. And then, <clears throat> but I remember uh, my mom, you know, I, I actually encountered puberty late. I was 14 years old. And um, I remember around the age of 12 or so being, it being really hyped up for me uh, by my mom, you know, basically this is when you become a woman. Right. And I started to really look forward to it because I thought it would take away what I now call dysphoria. I thought it would make me into a real girl. Right. Like I would. So I really very much looked forward to it. And the longer it got away from me, the longer it took to get there, the more I was like, I really am a boy after all. Like, I, you know, I, I was right all along. <laughs> and then when it did, you know, finally arrive, it wasn't traumatic in it all for me. It was like, it was like, like, and, and even like, I know a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, people with dysphoria, females with dysphoria have significant dysphoria around their periods. That was never a problem for me. It was never, I didn't like, I had dysphoria about all sorts of stuff with my body. That was never one of the things. And I wonder if it was kind of like, I looked forward to it. I wonder if that had something to do with it. Why it was never, uh, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't cure me like I thought it was going to, but you know, it, I never had any, um, you know, my dysphoria obviously got worse as I developed, but um, didn't take away that, that's supposed to be a boy feeling, but um so I wonder, and, and then, um, and I, I mean, my, they were agonizingly painful and I, they were ir irregular. And I think there is some sort of undiagnosed thing I've got going on there. I'm not sure about, but, um, but for me, yeah, it was very much like this, this <laughs> going to be this holy experience that's going to fix everything for me. Um, uh, yeah. So it's just interesting that we have yeah, such, such different, you know, very similar early life experiences and then obviously progressing the rest of our lives with dysphoria, but around that puberty issue, kind of polar opposites in that regard. So interesting yeah. interesting that you did kind of hope and look forward to feeling like a woman at some point that's interesting well, it's not that i like the, the concept felt entirely foreign like i couldn't conceptualize ever feeling like a woman but the way that um that that the the framing of puberty like this is going to i really thought that it would fix my internal sense of self mm. like i like it would i would no longer desperately wish to be a boy and I would no longer have to be ashamed about it. You know, it would all just go away once, once I got there. Um, but yeah, obviously it didn't. And then like the older I got and still at 27, still feeling that way, it was very embarrassing that, I, you know, until I, until I, again, uh, I, same thing. I never told anyone, but it was further confounding for me because I wasn't attracted to girls. Um, I was attracted to boys. So like as a teenager, I wished more than anything, well, more than anything other than being a boy, I wished that I was attracted to girls because that would make the whole sense of self as male make a lot more sense. Um, but I was, I was actually, you know, when I developed sexual attraction, it was to, um, to boys or to men. Um, but then, um, but then once testosterone came in here, that flipped on its head, um, but yeah, so, so I was, I had that same kind of uh, really secretive locked away thing that you did, but again, almost in the opposite direction is like, I felt like it would make sense if I were a lesbian, then, then, then that would make sense, that internal uh, male sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Dysphoria is a many splendid thing. Yeah, I, I kind of, I had the, a, a different sense of it because knowing not really knowing what lesbian was, but knowing I was attracted to women, 
I felt I knew I was female. I wanted to, I was interested in all things, what you would classify as, you know, male, gendered male stuff and play and all that. What they would say was was a male gender expression or something now. I don't know how you said it, but um, I thought to myself, it would be so much easier if I was a guy. It would be so much easier, like my life would be easier and I would I would feel more accepted in society for the things that I think and feel. Um, and now, you know, as an adult, I disagree with myself. I don't feel like being a man for me would actually solve any problems because my internal landscape is lesbian. You know, people, <laughs> I'm attracted to women um, and specifically lesbian women. So to be male presenting would do me no good, really. You know, it's not something that's going to benefit me any. Um, so I guess perspective, the, you know, the benefit of hindsight is a fantastic thing, but it was sort of painfully arrived at, I suppose, for probably all of us, I suppose, in different ways, you know. <laughs> I've never really, I don't know that I've ever seen a study about um, the correlation between gynecological problems of one kind or, and, and another and gender dysphoria, but an anecdotally from just talking to tons of of people about gender dysphoria, it seems to be a trend, mm -hmm. you know, both, both like early puberty or some kind of gynecological problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there is sincere lack of data all around, I suppose. And uh, as, uh, to a degree, it would be fascinating, but you know, there's, there are people, I guess, who now are aware of, what's going to happen to them. There's a large number of people who know, you know, what gynecologically is going to happen or what how their body is going to change. And they wish to stop it before it ever happens. Um which has problems in itself, really. It's it houses a whole other storm of issues on its own. Um yeah, I don't I it's complicated, doesn't it? It is very complicated. <laughs> It's a minefield as well. It's a complete minefield. Even talking about this sort of tends to get aggravation from all sides. But I guess these things need to be talked about. You know, we need to explore everything from people in different, you know, who have different backgrounds, who experience their dysphoria differently. You know, that's kind of part of being able to treat an individual instead of saying seeing the word dysphoria and treating everybody the same you know it's back to the same thing isn't it there isn't I don't feel like there is just one treatment for it I think there I think there there should be a sort of spectrum of treatment for it because there's a spectrum of ways of experiencing it mm -hmm. and one size does not fit all it almost Agreed. seems like um like trans is a product um <clears throat> And, and, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, needing as many customers as possible. Um, and, and it seems to have, have culturally uh, infiltrated the, the sense that, that there's that we don't want to explore, you know, what dysphoria is or how it's experienced or what what alternatives are. <clears throat> it's more like there's just <clears throat> this product and that and it will it will benefit. You, you know, it's very it's very commodified. It's not uh, it's it, um, and that uh, that 
that seems to be, you know, something I apologize for. We as Americans have kind of pushed on the rest of the world with our with our for-profit healthcare. Um, is this 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 notion that 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 yeah, this kind of medicine is a commodity, and we need as many consumers of it as possible. And so, <clears throat> you don't want to you don't want to examine, you know, what what got someone to want that product. You just want them to take the product. Um, yeah, I do feel that is an issue. Um, it is. I mean, really, when you start to market a thing, when it becomes a commodity, when it becomes a thing in which you can financially benefit, there, you know, it's not so much individuals' needs and uh, I suppose health, really, that you're looking at. It's selling whatever product you've got to sell. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a very worrying direction to be going in, especially when you're talking about the lives of young people and some countries' children are going down this road and other people are making those decisions on their behalf. And, um, you know, what I would have decided when I was 13, for example, and what I would decide now I'm 37 are completely different, completely different. Because I've experienced some life and I've I understand myself now in ways that I never could then. You know, I've studied a degree of child psychology and, you know, you do have a concept of yourself up to the age of sort of like about eight, um, but it doesn't really solidify until you're in your mid-teens. And some people have a really difficult experience growing up. They have really difficult feelings and those carry on, you know, they carry on past you know, your childhood years. And I mean, for myself, I wouldn't really say I discovered who I was until I was maybe like 28, 29, 30 years old. So right up until that point, I could have messed everything up for myself, you know, it's, and and there are kids making these decisions and parents who want to make them on their behalf. And even schools are taking it out, you know, the state is taking it out of the control of parents and out of the home. And we're talking about state-sponsored transition, really, when they're starting to use pronouns in schools, and you know, parents have no idea this is going on. And uh, to me, it's it's such a worrying direction to go in. You know, families should know what's going on in the lives of minors. You know, they should be informed. They should be part of it. They should be even, you know, brought in and you know, go to counselors together. Something. You know, there needs to be more cooperation amongst people and less division, again, bring it back to the division thing. But we seem to be creating divides and marketing bloody hormones, kids here. So I don't know. I guess we keep we keep fighting. We keep talking. <laughs> yeah. And undo the gay conflation. I think that's where that's why schools are in the predicament that they're in, <clears throat> and, and pushing this whole narrative, this idea of trans on on children, and and, and keeping that that from the the, the kids' parents because <clears throat> we, we've taken the, the the template of gay rights and applied it to this issue, right? And so so many kids, you know, gay kids were you know um, you know victims of homophobic abuse in their homes. Right. And so I think I think we've applied that same narrative to to the, the trans issue, except obviously now we're talking about, you know, hormones and or at least, you know, social transition and whatnot. It, it, trans is, is not, you know, gender dysphoria. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap with with homosexuality there, but but they're two completely different issues. 
And also, it seems mostly kids these days. It's, it, there's not a relationship with, with, with their sexuality. It's just, it's just um, discomfort in their gender or seeking some sort of identification with the trans label. And then the schools, at this point, their only option is to is to affirm and validate and and um, and and carry on these decisions as if they're protecting these children from a transphobic family, like. You know, they were protecting gay kids from a homophobic family is, I think, the mentality that goes into um, that that's secrecy. Um, but it's just so it's so misguided. I have seen and dangerous. Time and time again, particularly on social media forums where people have said they were told that it wasn't safe. You know, your your home is made out to be an unsafe emotional place to be and don't tell parents. You know, it's all about secretiveness. And, you know, it just smacks to me the same as shame for me. Like, I had a lot of shame around being a lesbian. And it was didn't come from my family because they didn't know. Like, I, I didn't tell anybody. But what shame is, it's something that, it's a place where you keep secrets. You know, shame is, it grows in the dark. And secrets are dark, you know, dark places. And I think it's kind of fostering that sense of suspicion. Um, you can't tell people this about yourself. They're not going to accept you. You know, it's back to the same old thing, like what you said, where, you know, it used to be an LGBT thing and now it's being made into a trans one. But it's pushing kids away from their families and even those families who wish to have love and wish to embrace it and wish to, you know, just love their kids in the best way that they can. You know, they're, they'll sort of do whatever they need to do and they get rejected anyway. You know, and I, it's, there's something, there's something toxic going on at the same time, because most people, I think, do just want to love their relatives in the best way possible. They do want to love their friends. They want to, they want to help. You know, I would say in good faith, most people are like that. Some aren't, some don't wish you well. Um, there's always going to be examples of that, but I, I guess it's the arising of suspicion among people who mostly just want to love you and look after you. But it sets off alarm bells for me. It seemed like we were doing okay um, until critical theory took over. Yeah. You know, I mean, homophobia was, was getting better and now it seems to be going backwards and um, there were still trans people, but we didn't have the same kinds of problems that we have now. It seemed to be, seemed to be working. Okay. You know, maybe there was the occasional incident that people were concerned about, but nothing like it is now, but there's parallels, I think, um, between what's happening in trans activism and, and from what I understand with the black lives movement as well, which is also a movement based on critical theory and, and how, dogmatic that becomes and how divisive that becomes and then ends up hurting the people that it's meant to protect when you have you know upper class white people telling people of color that that they're not doing their race properly because they don't believe in the black lives matter movement or in in critical race theory and it's, so something similar is happening with the trans movement that if trans people aren't all on board with gender ideology and queer theory that you know, we're not doing trans properly. Yeah, it's like it's latched on. You know, it's a, it has evolved, as it were. It's another thing we were talking about earlier, my wife and I, um, before I spoke to you both. Um, 
we said, you know, originally what trans rights was about was for those people who did suffer from dysphoria, but a sort of crippling dysphoria that, you know, the only treatment for those people that they could see that would ease their discomfort was to was to actually physically transition, was to have the testosterone, was to perform surgeries, you know, was to change their their bodies to to really meet that discomfort in the middle somewhere. And what it is now is, you know, queer theory. And what do we see with that? We see the erosion of language, the erosion of words, the erosion of meaning, the erosion of what it really even means to be lesbian, gay or bisexual. Like, what does it mean to them anymore? Nothing. Because lesbians are supposed or even to be accept... male or female. What? Oh, sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry. It's okay. Oh, I was just, I was just saying. Yeah, yeah, you can't even. Yeah, if you keep, we can't even. Yeah, there's no way to define a lesbian if you can't even define a, a man or a woman, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And it's just what I find is that it erodes, it erodes language, and what is it? It makes everything meaningless, really. So it means nothing to be a woman. It means nothing to be a lesbian. You know, all of a sudden, I'm having people shouting bigot at me because I don't want to have. A trans woman for a girlfriend you know and it's not it's nothing personal it's is that I am a lesbian and I you know it's it's complicated doesn't it it makes <laughs> you wonder are, sorry like why why people want want so badly into a club that you're in, into a classification that no longer means anything once they're included in it um especially now more and more, it's like um, uh, the, 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 the drive to be included in this classification has become so militant, but with, it becomes more militant with each passing day that that classification is more and more meaningless. It doesn't really make sense in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder what the long game is here, but sorry, go on what you're saying. I don't know. The other worrying thing is that this is, I mean, it didn't help that we had COVID. It didn't help that we had a pandemic to deal with in the middle of this because basically our whole lives that did incorporate, you know, being social outside of the home, all of a sudden got trapped inside. And we all, you know, most people fled to the internet and something changed there. You know, with the militant feeling around this, people got aggressive and that aggression is now spilling out of the internet now that we're allowed to go back out to pubs and clubs and into the street and demonstrations and so on and so forth. We're finding now that there is aggression in person. And, you know, I what worries me is how worse that's going to get. You know, how, you know, we, we all talk about feeling safe and you know, it's very difficult to have a feminist meeting or a lesbian-only meeting or anything like that without somebody protesting it, and aggressively so. So, <clears throat> I don't know, I feel like there needs to be more in the way of discussions across thought groups, really, and people who disagree with us need to stop shouting and come and sit down, really. Have a cup of tea and a chat, you know, <laughs> or coffee, whichever you're. <laughs> but no, I, it's very difficult because you can sort of say in theory, you know, this is what we need to do. But getting from where we are now to that place, how do we do it? That's how a good question. 
And that's the thing that's stumping everybody. How do we do it? How do we stop fighting and start talking? I think it's like you actually said earlier is, is just by, by doing that, by, by demonstrating it, you know, by, by speaking to each other. Um, the, the, the frightening thing is, is it seems um, um, that, and I, I don't know how, if this is the case with older people, but certainly with, with younger people, it seems like with, with the inundate, with social media kind of um, being a template for how we think and operate, um, you, you can't, people are discouraged from having conversations with the people that they disagree with because they're accused of platforming that person or they're accused of, um, you know, they, they must be an agreement with them somewhere. Um, so it's just that constant fear of, of, of criticism. So, you, and then the louder you are in opposition to people that you disagree with, the more pure, pure you are, right? Like the, the, you, you shout down the people that you disagree with as a demonstration of your moral purity to, to, to save you from any, you know, retribution from, from the good guys on your side. Um, it's all, it's also, it's all a performance. Uh, it's not, it's not about what's, what's real or true or, or um, helpful. It's, it's about performing purity to, you know, to, to, to keep the mob off your back. Um, and I, and I, I see it with, with, you know, people that I, I know from work too, like, like just, I think it's probably escalated significantly with COVID. Um, but, but it, yeah, it's not, it's not just, it's not just teenagers or, you know, the uh, generation Z it's um, it seems to have infiltrated the minds of, you know, 20, 30 year olds, 40 year olds. Um, this, this kind of that a conversation because so much of our, many of our conversations happen online, they're all performances. I, obviously this is to an extent as well, but we're just trying to perform the opposite of that and like just have, have a meaningful uh, you know, conversation um, with people. Obviously we're all in agreement here for the most part, but um, that got rambly. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's basically, most of it is performance and that's why they can't just sit down and have an open, honest discussion with people they disagree with because you have to demonstrate how much you disagree with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's even reached levels of government too, and and yeah. it, it's really necessary in in both government and and science. You know, like the the clinical world, that that discussion has to happen. You know, like you can't write law and, and policy or provide good clinical practice if you're not allowed to kind of be curious and debate things and, and have conversations about it. And um, the more that these ideologies have found their way into upper levels of government, you see governments just in debates, just resorting to, well, you're just a turf or you're just, you're just racist. Like they just, they're throwing out, you know, slurs and labels rather than having conversations, even at that level. So that's when things get really scary. Yeah. yeah. It was shutting down discussion really, instead of opening it up. And I know a lot of these, I mean, the reason that we're sort of challenging and questioning some of the bills that are coming forward is that they clearly haven't been written by people who, or they haven't entirely been written by people who have legislative knowledge. You know, some of the wording is horrendous. It's like so unclear. And it's, it's very difficult to even speak to anybody about it because you get cut off. You know, you have so many with when you're talking about social media, when you're talking about any sort of network uh, where you're, you're trying to reach people, they have so many filters, you know, they have so many block lists, you know, and then we're all sort of just talking to people like like Aaron said, we, we're all talking to people who we agree with or 
maybe we don't, but we're on, you know, we're saying we're on the same side. What I'm finding with that is, because a lot of trans ideologists are in the same boat, they have block lists for TERFs, they have block lists for us gender critics. But what's happening is then those groups that are sort of little stagnant pools are imploding on themselves as well. People are infighting, you know, if you can't cancel those people, well, we'll cancel these people instead amongst my own circle. And it's becoming such a, it it is just a stagnant sort of toxic debate right now. So it's, it would be refreshing to, to have somebody who wasn't in that no debate frame of mind. And we've asked, you know, we've asked public figures, but maybe that's not where it starts. Maybe public figures is not where it starts. And maybe we have to go back to the old way of doing stuff and have one conversation at a time. You know, maybe we have to have a conversation with our neighbour or that random person down the pub and start over again and bring, you know, bring a bit of adult conversation to the table again. Because I don't feel like this is what's happening. I feel like everyone's just fighting and uh-huh. dividing. And, and, and it, they're sort of doing it in the name of inclusivity. And it's nothing but, you know, anything but inclusive is what's happening. It's... It's extremely divisive, extremely erosive, and I just I, I find it very difficult personally. So, and we've all got our own personal struggles going on at the same time. I mean, we do activism. My wife and I do activism, but we do it in our spare time. You know, we're unfunded, <laughs> contrary to popular belief. Um, but you know, it's it's a passion. It's our lives that we're talking about, and I don't want people to to feel like. I don't want them to have rights. Everyone deserves to be safe. Everyone deserves to have equal rights to one another. But like, I, I just feel like we need a way to bring each other together again. And not, you know, I, I don't want to be able to go to Dublin and not go to a pub and be turfed out because I'm a turf. <laughs> you know, or like, I don't want somebody to be excluded because they, you know, because they believe in trans ideology. Like, why can't we not just get along? Yeah. It's pretty useless when our when our um, our politicians, like you're saying, are are, are just as terrified as ca- of cancellation as, or even more so probably, <clears throat> than than anyone else on on um, on social media. Yes. Yeah, yeah no, everybody. Right. There's nobody who can avoid it. Yeah. You know, it's going to the highest level, really. And I don't know what what for. What's it for? What are we trying to achieve at the end of all of this? I mean. I guess looking at the motives for it would be somewhere to start. You know, why are you looking to cancel these people? What is it that you feel like they're trying to do to you? And then work from there. I don't know. I don't know where to start. It's you've got to start somewhere. It's massive. Discussions, yeah. Discussions like this, I guess, yep. is where you kind of start. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it is hard to know where to start. We're all doing our very best, really. Um I engage people who disagree with me. I engage people to a degree. Depends how horrible they are. But um, anyone who's outright homophobic um, on online, I don't engage with. But people who engage me in a fair debate, I will talk to because those conversations are worth having. You know, I said to anybody, come and chat to me. You know, I, I don't care if you agree with me or not. Better that you don't because, you know, I talk to so many people who agree with me. It's lovely to talk to somebody else and find a common ground because there is one, like I'll guarantee it, with the majority of people. If you're not determined to make enemies with me, you'll find a friend, you know, 
and you might surprise yourself. And I think maybe it's just people open up their mind, you know, open up the, to the possibility that we're not as hateful as they think we are. Absolutely. You got a lot of thoughts, Lauren. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I still thinking every day. <laughs> we talk a lot. You see, in my household, we talk an awful lot all the time. And then we have, we, we do have, particularly now the pandemic's over, we have a lot of friends around and we constantly are talking and thinking about this, thinking about ways to improve the situation, thinking about what we might be doing wrong. What are we not understanding here? You know, is it is it generational difference? Is there something going on with we're just not communicating on the same level? How can we reach people really to, you know, and open this up? Because there's got to be a way. And I think everyone sort of feels the same way. They all want to connect. It's just that we, we all have different ways of doing it. And, and I guess possibly some of us are a bit, some people are a bit lost and they need, you know, they need a bit of help. And there's people who, you know, they're scared to disagree. They're so scared of being cancelled. They don't even want to tell you what their opinions are. And it's like that in Ireland. So in Ireland, it's very community, very family oriented, very community. Everybody knows everybody else. So if one person cancels you, possibly everybody you know does. And some people don't want to risk that. They don't want to risk losing everything because it's too big for them. And I mean, really what we're trying to say is that's not what we're about. You know, we're not hardline political nuts here. We're just mostly a group of lesbians. We've got uh, lesbian, bisexual, uh, gay friends, and we all just want to, we want to kind of, in a way, turn back the clock so that, that we can have those conversations again, so that we can all just be around one another. We can talk about things like dysphoria without getting cancelled because somebody thinks the transition's a good idea and somebody else doesn't you know it's there's so many different ways to go about things mm-hmm. and i just good healthy honest conversations are what i'd love to inspire people would be great I think this this culture has kind of kind of caused a lot of us to to come out and be like no I don't I, you know damn the consequences we need to talk about things and I think the the more toxic and oppressive the environment of cancellation becomes the more people are going to be like no I don't want to live like this anymore um, and so I think I think it will t- it takes the pressure coming down for people to 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 bust out of it and be and and to and to get into um, you know to just kind of yeah. Uh, damn the consequences, uh, start talking and being honest. And more and more people are already coming out and doing that. And I think that's, I think that's, you know, people will eventually have had enough and, um, and will, and will start speaking their mind again. Um, So. Choose life. I mean, that's part of the reason why my wife and I operate under our own names. You know, from the very beginning of this, we have been out open about who we are about where we come from and people can shout as loud as they want they can call us whatever they like but i am here in my own name because i believe in this like i believe that we're all free people that we should all have a freedom of speech that we should all come together be who we are disagree agree and you know have that healthy boundary loving relationship and just you know get on with things like I would I would happily go along with people and help them fulfill their rights in course of law you know if 
if they would allow me to, if they wouldn't shout at me and say you're a terrible transphobic bigot. I'm really not. You know, I think if you knew me and you talked to me, you would change your mind on that. You know, anyone who feels like that's the case, they really don't know who I am. Um, and it's probably the case for a lot of us who are, you know, gender critical in any way. Yeah, no. One conversation it, it at seem, a time. Yeah, it seems like it has to start with those that at least remember a time, what you were saying about rolling back the clock to to when conversations were allowed to happen. Like, um, if you can't just leave it to the to the kids to figure this out who have never had that experience. So they don't have that memory of of a time when it wasn't like this, right? So yeah. Yeah. it has to be us that does it. Otherwise the kids are, are gonna be really ill-equipped to do it and, and um, won't have any model. They're, they'd just be starting completely from scratch. Right. Yeah. And some of them probably think like we're old folks. Do you know what I mean? They'll think, well, why should I listen to you? I know that this can work. I know that people can learn how to do it. I know that people can have a conversation with somebody who they completely disagree with and not throw their teddy out the pram because I am one of those people. I have been, you know, I grew up working class. I had some very narrow views on things when I met my wife. The very first conversation I had with her, she completely changed my mind on a subject. I disagreed with her. She stated some you know, facts around it, didn't even try to be persuasive. And I was like, oh, so it's just because I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to argue a point. I didn't know how to have a discussion without shutting it down. And I've learned how to do that myself. I've never had a community to learn lesbians from or like be, you know, feel like I had safe spaces or like, you know, I've never had that lesbian only spaces apart from the ones I created, which started in my own house. And that's something that if we could learn to, you know, some people do remember it. Some people have fond memories and they can join and like loads of people are already doing that. But like, yeah, like you said, having those, creating those spaces again, creating those conversations again, cute dog, by the way, um, that, you know, that's, I think, how it starts, I suppose. Instead of demonizing one another, why don't we just sit down and talk it out? <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much, been, Lauren. Really appreciate it, it's Lauren. Been, it's been great to it's been have a really, chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your honesty, both of you. It's been uh, really, really good to chat to you. I feel like I know you a little bit better. Thank you.